All right. Well, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll continue in our study here. In our introduction, uh, Paul's introduction here uh, to the Philippians, which goes through to verse 11, his sort of uh, intro and greeting. Um, we're going to go to verse 7 uh, this morning in our little study here. Um, and I'll begin reading from uh, verse 1. And it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And we saw last time our identity in Christ, <clears throat> that Paul was labeling them as saints in Christ Jesus. These are uh, believers, and he's reminding them of their position in Christ in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And he continues on, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because i have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me and we'll go through each verse together starting in verse two and paul says Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, he uses <clears throat> a, a common Greco-Roman greeting here. Um, well, he plays off of a common greeting, I should say. And the Greek word is carrion, which actually means greetings. And it was, it was commonly used in the ancient world. And he uses the word shalom or peace which would be a Hebrew uh, common greeting, and he combines these two. <clears throat> now, what he does is, Paul is very intentional about the words that he uses, which is very interesting. He's very purposeful in the words he chooses, <clears throat> and he, they have a focused intended meaning. And we would tend to skip over this and kind of glance over this grace to you in peace. And he uses this in other um, books, uh, uh, other, other letters, and many times he would add mercy as well. Um, but he changes, he, he, he uses a similar Greek word, kairis, which is, which is translated grace, where carrion would be translated just a common greetings. And, and as I said, it's very intentional. And, and this grace that Paul is referring to here, and he says grace unto you and, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace is either, there's two Greek words for peace in the New Testament. And the, Greek, the words that he uses, <clears throat> they're, they're actually used interchangeably um, in the New Testament. And peace is either relating to um, relational peace, 
or heart peace or, or inner peace. And, and here, Paul is using um, this word grace and peace. Now, he's, we just last time we talked about their position in Christ. So he's speaking to believers here. He's speaking to Christians. And he's, he's speaking of, of saving grace. Is he speaking of <clears throat> this grace that saved us? Um, or is he speaking of another form of grace? Not a, a form of grace, but a, a manifestation of this grace now that we are Christians. And so, turn with me, if you would, um, to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to see if we can, we can paint a picture here of what this grace is that he's referring to. In Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, in, in, in picking up in verse 1 here, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what is Paul saying here in, in Philippians? <clears throat> He's giving this greeting. Now, this, this beautiful grace in, in which we stand is it's not that we took a break from sinning against God and he sort of stepped in and saved us while we were, um, you know, doing okay. No, he says, while you were dead in your transgressions, while you were, while you were, we were actively his enemies. This grace came to us and he made us alive together with Christ. And this, this grace is, it tends to, um, at least in the, in the Western Christian world, we, we use words like it's unmerited or undeserved. And that is true, right? We didn't merit this and we didn't deserve this. But it, that description that we tend to use for this grace, this kairis that Paul uh, chooses to use here, just falls so way short of its actual meaning. And it's not only unmerited grace or undeserved, but it's ill-deserved. Okay? It, it is, we deserve the actual opposite of that, which is judgment and wrath. So it's not that we just couldn't earn it or didn't do enough to get it. It's that we were actively his enemies, and, and, and that is where he met us. And, and this is an ill-deserved grace that we get from the Lord. And see, grace and mercy are two um, sort of two sides of the same coin. Of God's amazing grace. And when you add mercy to this, you we tend we get closer to the, the meaning 
of what Paul is saying about this grace. And grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? And it's actually ill-deserved, right? And mercy is not, is not getting what we do deserve, which is judgment and wrath. So that gets us closer to understanding really what God's grace is. And this word kairis would be used in the, in, in the ancient world and in, in the Greek. And it, would, and, it, and it had this idea of, of um, a favor done by one Greek to another out of the pure generosity of his heart with no hope of reward. And that's nice, right? You don't, have, you don't expect anything in return. That's how the Greeks would use this word grace. But Paul, in his intentionality, charges it with deeper spiritual biblical meaning. And it's not only that God does this out of the generosity of his heart, but he also takes on, see there's more to this, he takes on the actual judgment and wrath that we deserve. So not only is it unmerited and undeserved, it's ill-deserved in that we should get the opposite, which is wrath. But God himself steps in and says, I'll take that wrath upon myself for you. And that is us, us progressing closer to understanding what this grace really is all about. And, and when the Greeks used this word, it was never... It was always toward a friend. It was always toward a relative, someone that they knew um, that they would have this grace toward, never toward an enemy. And not only did God do this, but he did this for his active enemies. And Paul says in Romans 5, he says, God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. It's unique to him. And that is, it is, it originates in him and that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so while we were still helpless, it says at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, and he goes on and says, he says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone might dare to die. But God died, Christ came, God, by his grace, through the cross, died for those who were actively his enemies. And that is the true essence of grace. And it has that mercy, um, not getting what we do deserve, sort of um, as a part of that understanding of, of God's amazing grace. And so, stay here in Ephesians 2, because Christians tend to, to think many times that there was something intrinsic within us that that God delighted in that caused him to save us, right? Before we were saved. There would have, that had to have been something nice about me as a, compared to the next person, right? And we, to Christians can tend to think that way. And nothing could be further from the truth based upon the definition that I just gave about grace. We deserve the opposite and we're his enemies and he took it upon himself. And also, even after salvation, Christians can tend to think that that in and of themselves, something intrinsically is better than the average unbeliever. So we can kind of think, well, now that I'm saved, you know, there's got to be something. We always want to gravitate toward, 
something that we always want to think that there's something good within us that God is delighting in. But he's not. This is purely an act of sovereign grace. Look at verse uh, 3 in Ephesians 2. He says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, listen to it, even as the rest. So I remember I, we, we would be fellowshipping in certain different certain Christian circles and say, well, there's nothing, there's nothing different than me about, about me. There's nothing better. I'm, not, I'm no better than my unbelieving neighbor. Right? And people just kind of look at you like, what do you mean? Like, you know, now in one sense, we're different in that we're in Christ and that we're a new creation. But in our old man, we are no better than our unbelieving neighbor, our scoffing coworker. We are just the same, even as the rest by nature, children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, while we were actively his enemies, made us alive together. So it's, it's important to understand and, and remind ourselves of what grace really is. So if we go back to Philippians chapter 1, what is Paul saying here? Grace unto you. Now this grace is the same grace that saved us, right? But this same amazing grace is now being made manifest in its sanctifying power in our lives. We, this grace in which we stand, we continue to stand and we continue to walk in it. So what he's saying to them is a beautiful saying that he coined this phrase. And he, and he takes these common greetings and he charges them with deep spiritual meaning. And he, what he's really saying to them is this sanctifying grace, because they're already believers, right? He's not saying, notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say grace unto you and peace with God. He says peace from God. So this grace in which we stand and we continue, what Paul is really saying is this sanctifying grace now unto you and the peace, the experiential peace that we gather because of that from God, which is all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's referring to his sanctifying grace and the experiential inner peace that comes from that. What a salutation, what a greeting that he gives. And when you see this in Scripture, be reminded of that. Because he's already said that they are saints. They're in Christ. They're positionally in him. So he's not speaking of relational peace here. He's speaking of heart peace. And this is going to be a small little foreshadowing of what's to come in Ephesians chapter 4, which this peace that Christ gives. Remember when Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. See, the world has a counterfeit peace. They have a false peace. But Jesus says, I give you my peace. And this peace we're going to see in the coming weeks is actually the opposite of anxiety. And there's, there's a basis in that, and it's based in truth. Why we don't have to be anxious 
because of the care and concern of, and love and grace of God, that we can now have this peace. And we will unpack that more as we go on. So this is sort of a taste of that. And he's talking about this sanctifying grace and this heart peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, when he thinks about the, the Philippians, it gives him great joy. And there's reason for that. He thanks God for them. Now, I want to uh, um, mention this when he says, always offering prayer with joy. And this is the first time we will see this, jo- this word joy or rejoice come up in the text. And, and it's a recurring theme in the book of Philippians, in this letter. And they're not just pli- pious sort of platitudes, and he's not just saying these things for no reason. He's... he's as he's first mentioning it here, and of course this is all introductory, we haven't got into the meat of the letter yet, but he, he, he begins and he says this, this word with joy. And what I want to, the seed I want to plant for you is this, that he doesn't just say these things, rejoice, rejoice, for, the, for, for no reason. There's a reason why. He's using this, this idea of joy, even in the midst of his own suffering, as sort of like a subtext for his appeal to them to change and to have a different mindset. So he's saying, what Paul is essentially saying is, I'm in prison. I'm tied to a Roman soldier, right? But yet he's saying, I have great joy when I think of you. When I pray for you, I have tremendous joy. And what he's also saying to them is, look, I understand you have opponents. I understand you have those who oppose the gospel. You have false teachers coming at you in all different directions. You have false Christians. You're experiencing suffering and persecution. But you can have this joy. And he says it without really saying it. When he's saying rejoice or have this joy, they know he's in prison. He could be executed at any moment. Nero, Nero could have a bad day and said, say, execute all the prisoners. I'm, I'm just done with these guys. I don't even want to deal with these people anymore. That could be, he was hanging in the balance between life and death. But yet he says, I have this joy in my every prayer for you all. And so, even in the midst of suffering, Paul is saying you could still rejoice. That is the underlying message that he's giving them. And it's going to blossom more as we we read and study on. But he says, in view of your participation. So the reason why he has this great joy And the reason why he's so thankful for them is because of their participation in the gospel from the first day from which he planted the church. And the word participation here is the word koinonia. And it's really this fellowship in the gospel. And koinonia is a very interesting word. And we think of it as, you know, if you know the word koinonia in the Greek, um, you may have some familiarity with it, and you don't understand that it means fellowship. And it, but it's, it, it's so much more than just we have this camaraderie, we enjoy one another's company, that sort of thing. Although that's part of it, because that, we, that, that connects us together. 
But what the, this term is actually a commercial term, meaning two people joining up together um, like in a business venture. And all parties, both parties, they're not just in a common, having a common interest or activity, but they're actively participating to ensure the success of the venture. That's the idea behind that word, koinonia, this fellowship. We don't just connect um, over a meal or over these things. We're in a joint venture together for the furtherance of the gospel. That's where the idea that this word carries with it, that we are joint participants together in the furtherance of the gospel. And so this is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, in view of your fellowship, your koinonia, in the gospel, with me from the first day until now. And so you remember Lydia when, when she came to Christ um, and Paul preached the gospel to the women by the, by the riverside. And she immediately opened up her home uh, to the missionaries and, and allowed them to come and stay with her. And, and the gospel continued on. She allowed them to have fellowship in her home. And week after week, they would go down and they would pray and they uh, at the t- a common time of prayer and they would come back and they would fellowship in her home. And the gospel continued. Even in Paul's absence, when Luke stayed behind and possibly Timothy for a time, staying behind there and carrying on the work, but also by prayer and by financial support. The Philippians supported Paul tremendously in his um, missionary work. And what he's saying is this partnership, this joint venture that we have um, partnered together in from the very beginning. This is why I'm so thankful. When I think of you, I am just overjoyed because of who you are, what you have been with me from the beginning. And from the very beginning, even as they, they immediately went from Philippi, if you remember, when they planted the church there and, they, and all of the things that happened there and they were beaten mercilessly, uh, unlawfully and thrown into prison and the earthquake and the Philippian jailer comes to Christ and all of those things, right? When they left there, they went right to uh, Thessalonica. And it says, and Paul reminds them in Philippians 4, he says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So they were immediately um, supportive of Paul in his missionary uh, ventures from the very beginning. They never stopped. They always wanted to support him. They believed in him. They believed in what Christ's call was upon his life to be the apostle to the Gentiles. These were an amazing bunch of believers. And they sent a gift more than once in Thessalonica. Also in Corinthians, he says, um, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, When I was present with you, speaking to the Corinthians, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren, brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. So what he's saying is, when the gift finally came from Philippi and up by uh, Macedonia, I, didn't ha- I continued to not have to be a financial burden on you. So they had sent gifts even further um, into Corinth to support Paul. So they were, they were tremendously generous 
and they believed they were all in, fully in, in the gospel, in the furtherance of the gospel. So this is what he's saying. We are joint partners. You're, we have this koinonia together in the furtherance of the gospel through you continuing on the work in Philippi, praying for me, and supporting me financially all the way through. And you remember when we talked all about the, this collection that Paul was giving, uh, collecting for the saints in Jerusalem, the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Berea and Thessalonica, they were the example that Paul used to the other churches and says, they begged us to be a part of this collection. So they were even a part of a strong part of that collection as well. So do, and, and, it's, and Paul even says they gave out of their deep poverty, but out of their deep poverty overflowed the wealth of their liberality. So they were tremendously generous, even though they struggled and had difficulties, they still wanted to support Paul, whatever he was doing, because they believed in the work. They believed in what Christ was doing through Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And even further, you remember um, Epaphroditus bringing, coming to Paul, reporting all the things about what's going on in Philippi. He brought another gift of support to Paul, right? So they're, so they're continuing on. And he even mentions instances where they had decided, they had tried to support him even before this. And he says, but you lacked opportunity, he says in chapter four. So we only have what's recorded for us of all the exact ones that they did um, uh, support him in. But he says there was even instances where you tried and you lacked opportunity. They were bankrolling this missionary work, even out of the depth of their poverty. And how beautiful that is. And this is the context which is causing Paul to have this great, immense joy and gratitude for all of them. And I want to point out to you another thing here. It's, he says four times, he says, you all. And in verse 4, I believe in uh, a few more times in verses 6 and 7. And remember, he says, uh, in, to all the saints, we pointed that out last time in Christ Jesus, he's speaking to them as individuals. And here he says four times up to verse 8, you all. He's speaking of them on a personal level. He knows these Christians very well. He knows them. And he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. If he was from the South, he'd say y'all, right? In my prayer for y'all. Because he knows them so intimately and so personally. And so keep that in mind as we continue on in our study. And so... We're going to skip verse 6 for right now, and we're going to go to verse 7. We're going to come back to it after we walk through verse 7. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to see the context. Verse 6 is a very popular passage in Scripture, and it's used and misused very often. And so I want to give you the context so that we can really appreciate verse 6 and put it in its proper context and make sure that we um, use it properly. And use it wisely. So let's go to verse 7. Then we're going to come back to verse 6. And so in verse 7 he says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. There's that you all again. Because I have you in my heart. 
since, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So he says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you. Now, I want to point out this, this word when, he, when it's translated feel, and I don't know if in your um, translation it's uh, to think or uh, to have a mindset of some sort. That is closer to the word which is used here, which is, which is phroneo. Now, phroneo is simply translate, it should simply be translated mindset. And it's used about 28 times in the New Testament as a whole, but it's used 10 times out of that 28 just in Philippians alone. And there's a reason for that. Paul uses this because he's appealing to the Philippians to have a certain mindset, a certain attitude of heart and an attitude of mind. So keep that in, in mind as we continue because we're going to, it, this is the first place it shows up. And it's translated feel here. But what Paul is really saying is, it is only right for me to have this mindset about you all. That's what he's saying. And he says, because I have you in my heart. And when he says, because I have you in my heart, two things. One is, in the Greek um, grammatical construction here, this can actually be translated, I have you in my heart, or you have me in your heart. So it can actually be translated both ways, um, and it would be perfectly fine because of the Greek grammar there. But most translators keep it on the, on the side of Paul saying, I have you in my heart. Um, and of course, we know Paul is um, very much a pastor. His flock is always upon his heart. And, and there's a reason for this, um, not only because he loves them, but listen to what he says. He says, since both in my imprisonment and the, the, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Now, he may or may not have um, gained a hearing from Nero at this point yet. Um, we know he wasn't acquitted yet, for sure, which we, he would ultimately be. But he's in no doubt. What is he referring to when he says, both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, I have you in my heart. It's only right for me to feel this way about you. And because he's in no doubt referring back to his testimony before the Jews in Jerusalem, when they captured and almost killed him, um, he was able to give testimony to his conversion story, to this mob of Jews, um, which eventually sends him to Caesarea, as we saw, where he spent two years in prison awaiting trial. And we have to understand something, that Paul, even though he was an apostle, he had been given tremendous, um, it says, he, said, he even said, the surpassing greatness of the revelations. He was still a man. He was still had a like nature like you and I. And he could still potentially become discouraged. And what he's saying into the Philippians is this. You guys are such an encouragement to me that the times that I was in prison and defending the gospel, you were on my heart. And you could just imagine him, you know, we, we kind of just skim over two years in prison. We say it so quickly, but what that was really like awaiting trial. He's on false charges. 
He could pretend he could become discouraged. But the Philippians were no doubt on his mind. They were always supporting him. Think about that from a missionary's perspective. That who, you know, maybe I'm crazy. You know, you can kind of like get a little, you know, um, crazy in your mind and in your thinking sometimes. But he wasn't crazy. And, and he was always reminded, I think, of the Philippians and, and their great and tremendous support for Paul. They were always searching and looking for opportunities to support him. That was in no doubt, and I think that's what he's saying here, that that was a tremendous encouragement to him. And even to the point where in, in Acts, before he, he, he appears before Felix, they drag him out of the prison, and they say, Felix wants to talk to you. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. And we just skim over that, like, oh, of course Paul's cheerful. He's an apostle, you know. Remember, he's also a man, but he had tremendous gifting and a tremendous high calling upon his life, no doubt. But he cheerfully makes his defense. And I think the Philippians had a, a big part in that, that they were always ones that were looking to support him, believed in him, believed in the mission, and wanted to join him in that. Even in his darkest moments, he could cheerfully make a defense. And I think the Philippians had a lot to do with that. And this word defense here is, is the word apologia, is where we get the word apologetics from. And, and Paul is no doubt uh, uh, referencing his defense of the gospel against his opponents, right? These false, uh, these Jews um, that were accusing him, um, these attacks against him. He's defending the gospel. He's using apologetics, if you will, um, and defending the gospel. He's also confirming the gospel and confirming the gospel by powerful, miraculous signs. God used him in miraculous ways. You remember when he was on the island of Malta and the, the serpent latched onto his arm and he flung it into the fire, <clears throat> right? And all the locals are staring at him, staring at him, waiting for him to die. But he doesn't die, right? And then they, they can't believe it, and they actually hail him as a god, right? So, And that's just one of many instances of Paul's uh, God using him through miraculous signs and miracles, these powerful miracles. And that confirmed the gospel. So that's what he's saying here. In my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And this is, this, is, this is an interesting word here when he says uh, partakers with me. And if your translation says fellow partakers, it's actually a better translation there. And the Greek word is synkoinonu. And it carries this sort of idea of being synced up together, having this partnership together, not only in the gospel, as he got done explaining to them or saying to them, that they're his partners, but they're also partners in God's grace. In this sanctifying grace now, this grace that God has poured out upon our lives, even while we were his enemies, deserving of wrath. Now, this grace we stand in, we stand in its sanctifying ability and power to change us. And he says, you are joint participants. We're synced up together in this grace as well. 
And of course, Paul had authority over the Philippians, right, as an apostle, and, and Jesus granted him this, this spiritual authority. But when it came to God's grace, he was saying, we're on the same par together. I'm no better than you. I've received this grace just like you did. And you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And he's speaking of the risen Christ, you remember. And he says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. When Paul was referencing God's grace, it was the same grace that they had received as well. Enemies. He persecuted the church of God and the grace of God captured him while he was on his way to persecute Christians. The grace of God grabbed him. And so likewise with you and I and with the Philippians. And he says, we stand together in this grace. We are joint partakers in this sanctifying grace. Now it saved us at one time. Now it's sanctifying us and changing us. And this is where we stand. So let's turn back to verse 6. And now you see this context here that I purposely wanted to draw and bring these things out so that we can have this, this beautiful passage in its context. Because far too often, Christians and people, well-meaning people maybe, take it out of its context and they apply it to anyone at any time, right? Paul is saying, I am confident of this because of who I know you to be and all the things that we just got done explaining about the Philippians. Paul is confident. He even says it. I have this assurance. I'm fully persuaded that you have eternal security because of who they are. He says, who he who began a good work in you, he will carry it out to completion and perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul wasn't going to just say this, you know, willy-nilly. Um, and we have to be careful also not to give anyone any false hope or false assurance um, we should be encouraging people in the eternal security of their faith, knowing who they are and their walk with Christ, that they truly are God's people, because we have to be careful not to give false hope. And you see these passages and they, they float around the Internet and they're they're sort of on their own, you know, and but I wanted us to see clearly the context here. That, and then Paul's confidence about them, that he's saying, yes, you, I know you. And God who began this good work in you is going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, let me uh, first say some have attempted to interpret this as the good work of their giving, as just in their giving alone. But really, the, the context doesn't bear that out, I don't think. And the wording here um, that he's speaking very much about their salvation, their beginnings, the good work that God began in them, and is also perfecting in them and bringing to maturity. And, and he says, even as far as the day of the Lord, 
the day of Christ. So he's no, no doubt speaking about salvation in my mind. And this word begin or began is actually only used one other time in Scripture. It's in Galatians 3.3, and it's used in the context of this very thing. In Galatians 3.3, you remember he's speaking to the Galatians, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so Paul is referring to the beginning of God's work in the Spirit, that we're not going to become completed or uh, fully sanctified by the works of our flesh. No, it's by God's grace and His grace alone. And so, we have this eternal security, right? This beautiful passage here of this good work that God does in us, and He will perfect it. Remember, Jesus says, all that the Father have given me, I've lost none. And all that are uh, in my hand, no one can pluck them out of my hand. No one. And I have some, I wish I could go through all these passages with you about our, our security in Christ. But let me give you just one. <clears throat> in First Peter, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And you can turn there if you want, but I'll read it to you. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. All these beautiful things he's saying here. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. So think of this. He's saying, God's caused you to be born again. He's given you, you've obtained this inheritance. But we were his enemies. Now he's going to bless. He's not only going to save me from hell, but he's also going to bless me with an inheritance. You've got to be kidding me. He's given us an inheritance. He says it's un imperishable, undefiled. He says it's even reserved in heaven for you. It's waiting for you. And what this does is it actually begs a question. What if I don't get there? God does all these great things for me, and then what if I can't get myself there to receive it? But listen to what he says here. This is a very important part of this passage. He says, who are protected by the power of God. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Another translation says is that we are kept by God's power. That is the security that we have. We are protected by him. Peter makes certain that he says this. Because we have all these great things that are waiting for us in heaven. It's like, well, what if I never get there? We are protected by God's power. And that's just one example of so many. Of God's grace and how it keeps us. But we have, there's two major things that are happening here in this passage in verse 6. There is this idea of security, our eternal security in Christ, that we can never lose because it's based upon His grace. But, he said, but there's also this idea of assurance and confidence. So it's, on the one hand, having security, and then on the other hand, 
Do I know I have that security? Am I fully assured and confident that that's actually true? And so Paul was fully assured and fully confident that the Philippians did possess this security. But the question is, do we possess the same security? Uh, assurance. Excuse me. If, you, if we are in Christ, we have security. It's a fully done deal by the grace of God. But do we know for sure that we are His? And there's, so there's this both things at play here. Do we have assurance that it's true? Um, and if it is true, it's a done deal. So, Paul's, what Paul is saying to the Philippians is this. That I am fully persuaded that you have this. And it's because of who I know you to be. And our assurance as Christians, now remember, our assurance, not the security. The security is in God and in Christ by His grace. But our assurance is twofold. Our assurance and confidence in this is the inner witness of the abiding Holy Spirit that Christ gave us. He says, I give you um, I think I had it marked here in my Bible. He says, I will, Jesus says, I will ask of the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. And I'm reading from John 14. He says that He may be with you forever. He says, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it did not know Him, uh, see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit abides with us forever. John says in 1 John that we have this anointing, this presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's that first aspect of that inner witness that we are truly His. And the second aspect that John brings out is our obedience. Our obedience does not keep us saved. That's not, I'm not referencing that in terms of security. I'm referencing it as John did in terms of our assurance. Listen to what John says. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. See, it's a sense of knowledge and understanding and assured in our heart before God. That's what he is getting at. And he says, little children in 1 John 3, in another passage, he says, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So if someone, let me put it to you this way. If a Christian is, let's say the wayward, right? They're prodigal at one time in their life. I've been there personally. It, they may have security in Christ and truly be his, but they don't have any assurance. That's what the scripture is teaching us, that our assurance is in our obedience. Our confidence about that truth is in our obedience and in the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And John says at the end of his letter in 1 John, he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God 
so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's so important as Christians to understand that we know that we are His. And Paul says in another place, the Bible talks about this. And he says to the Corinthians, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? He says to examine yourself. The writers of the, the, the scripture don't just apply these things to, to just anyone. You'll often hear Paul say things like, if you continue and remain firm until the end. What he's saying is that he, he knows that he has different readers and different hearers. And so he's not just applying it and saying, well, if you're reading this, you have eternal life. You know, don't, don't, don't worry. You're, you can be fully assured of that. No. He says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Peter says it this way. He says, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. He says, make your calling and election sure. So we have these two things working here. We have confidence and assurance, and then we have the concrete reality of eternal security, right? And so we see these both working here, and Paul being fully persuaded, he's fully assured because of who he knows the Philippians are. And he states it emphatically and says, I know he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus because I know you and I've seen the fruit of your life. So we have to be careful and I would have to be careful teaching this passage um, to make sure that these things about assurances um, and confidence is taught along with it. Lest anyone take this and say, well, yeah, I have an uh, uh, intellectual assent about Jesus, so I must be eternally secure. We have to be careful not to give false hope and false assurance. And so, in this sanctification, in this grace in which we stand, God is calling us into cooperation with Him. So, at our salvation, remember, we were his enemies. We were actively working against him, and he saved us and seated us with, with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? And we're like, whoa! We were, I was, you know, we were actively sinning against him. And this grace and now which we stand in our sanctification, he calls us into him to be a part of this. And it's a collaborative work that he calls us into, where our salvation in the beginning was monergistic, where it was all the work of God, this is now in our sanctification is synergistic, where we are called into fellowship and partnership with him to, to carry out this work. Now, who does most of the work, right? Of course, it's God. Remember when Jesus said, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and humble in heart. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what is a yoke? Kids, pay attention to this. Is a yoke just, you know, when you crack an egg and you got the, the, the whites and the yolk? No. When the Bible says yoke, it's an agrarian term, which means 
it, it was like sort of like the uh, M in McDonald's, right? It's this, this M-shaped, what they would call yoke, and they would put two animals in this together. And this is where we get this idea of synergy from. So if one ox <laughs> can pull 10,000 pounds, two oxen can pull 30,000 pounds. You see, that's the synergy that happens. So when you yoke two animals together, that's what happens. You, you get this synergistic work happening. And so what Jesus is saying is this to us. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke yourself unto me. And I do all the pulling. Right? I do most of the pulling. You're, what we're doing is, what he's calling us into is to yield ourselves to him in our obedience and repentance. This is our part. Listen to what he says in, in Philippians chapter 2, and it's all right here in this passage. Philippians 2.12, you look at the next page over. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And what's essentially happening is God makes us want what pleases Him. And He enables us to do it. And what He's calling us to is to yield to Him in obedience and repentance. We have a part to play in this journey of our sanctification. But of course, when we yoke ourselves up to Jesus, what happens? His power is what carries us to the end. He's the one who completes the work. We are just called to fellowship and partake with him in that work. And he does all of the pulling and all of the plowing, right? So it's this yielding. Remember Paul says, even he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. We're not to live in the sin any longer in Romans 6. But be but alive, but live as though alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, there, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, in your mortal body, that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body as to sin as instruments of righteousness. He says, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is our part, is repentance and obedience to his commands. And that is, is the seat of our assurance and our confidence in the beautiful, concrete work that God does by His grace. It is His grace that we stand. And we get to join Him in this beautiful work of sanctification as we yield to Him. And what does He do? He gives us rewards. Are you kidding me? It's like, uh, you know... We yoke ourselves up to Jesus. He does all of this work, and then He piles rewards upon, our, upon us. And what did they do in the book of Revelation? They cast their crowns before Him because they look upon Him and they say, you did all the work. How could it be that I have these crowns? And this is why they cast the, their crowns before Him, before His throne. So what a beautiful picture we have here in this context of Paul's confidence in the Philippians and who they are and, and the, the 
the, uh, their identity in Christ, but also their beautiful work and how they joined him and how this great gave him this great confidence. And this is our confidence. This is our assurance. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in our obedience to Christ and his commandments. And we'll stop there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for uh, this word that you've given us, this um, great confidence that we have in your grace and your sanctifying power uh, in our lives to change us and to mold us and shape us into your image, that you've called us into this work um, in our repentance and in our obedience to your commands. Lord, give us, as you do, you, you are at work in us, both to will, have the desire to do it, and to carry it out. And thank you, Lord, that you do all these wonderful things and you will bring these things to completion because we are protected by you, protected by your power. And we can have great confidence um, and assurance and encouragement in that. And we just ask that you would um, bless these things to our hearts as we continue on in these study in the next, in these coming weeks, Lord, that these things would uh, remind us and prepare us for, for your truth as it's unfolded here in Philippians. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.